Today we're in Ruth 3, our second to last look at this, at this tale of love that's um, sometimes called the, the best short story ever written. I've, I've read several people who have said that. Uh, this is a story that revolves around these, these two themes, kindness and redemption. And uh, kindness, you know, the word in Hebrew, chesed, is translated a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's translated love, kindness, loving kindness, steadfast love. And it's a word that I keep bringing up. Uh, and kindness is a nice way to translate it because it means like being good to someone and, you know, uh, pouring out your generosity or your care and, and, you know, showing them the best of you, right? That's kindness. Uh, and and that's probably why the book translates the word as kindness in this way, because sometimes it'll say, you showed kindness to your mother-in-law, you showed your kindness to, to me, and, you know, and it's trying to, uh, to target that aspect of the relationship, you know, the way that you, you pour out your care and concern and your generosity, etc. Uh, if you translated it love, because this is a story that kind of involves romantic love and stuff, it might start to confuse what's meant. Like, you know, your love for me, it makes it sound romantic. That's not really what's going on. Uh, it, our title for today's sermon is Redeeming Love. And that's the two themes, redemption and loving kindness. Uh, redemption and, and chesed. Uh, and we see these two themes in our main characters in multiple ways throughout the book. And the author of this book has decided to let the events of the story and the, uh, the actions and the dialogue of the characters show you, rather than the, the author telling you, uh, but allows the characters and the events to show you the kindness and the redemption of God, the redeeming love of God. In, in most of the book, it doesn't say that God made this happen or God caused this to happen or God intervened. To, uh, in order to, uh, to make this course of events. It doesn't really say that. The events merely happen, and then the characters acknowledge that God is in sovereign control of it all. But the author doesn't, doesn't feed that to you. The, it, he lets the characters speak what they spoke, uh, and uh, it, it informs us in that manner. That's the means by which we, we understand God's activity. For the most part, his activity is still somewhat veiled and mysterious. We don't get a narrative of what's going on in heaven. You know, like the book of Job opens up in the first two chapters of God uh, with the council of angels all coming together and then Satan enters the room and they're all talking and we get, we get a look at the scene taking place in heaven. Uh, we don't get that here in the book of Ruth. We have no idea what God is thinking in heaven. He doesn't say anything. And only until really the, the very last chapter, you don't really see him explicitly being credited as doing anything by the author. It's more the, uh, it's more the, uh, the characters that, that just, you know, describe what they're, what they're noticing. So only until the end of the book do you see where it was all going. He's veiled and mysterious throughout this book. The story begins with a Jewish man named Elimelech and his Jewish wife, Naomi. So these two Jewish people, Hebrews, same, uh, same, thing for our purposes today, okay? Elimelech and Naomi, they're both Jewish. They have two sons, Malon and Kilion, and, uh, and famine strikes Israel, and so they leave Israel. They leave Bethlehem, their town, Bethlehem. Uh, they leave the town of Bethlehem. They leave the country of Israel. They move to the country of Moab, and they stay there for some time. And uh, while they're there, their sons, Malon and Kilion, they marry two Moabite women, 
They each marry one Moabite woman. Uh, eventually, Elimelech, the man, he dies, and his sons also die. And so that leaves us with three widows, Naomi, and then the two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Orpah leaves, but Ruth clings to Naomi, her, her mother-in-law. She remains, and, uh, and Ruth swears to stay with Naomi and worship the God of Israel. And so the two return to Bethlehem in Israel. And so Ruth, now being a foreigner, she's a Moabite in the land of Israel. Uh, she has no husband, no family, no protection, no income, no, no job, nothing like that. So she has to do something to make ends meet. So she goes out to glean crops, which is po- what poor people did lawfully. Uh, that's how they would uh, pick up leftovers after, after the reapers of, uh, of a field. Uh, she goes out to glean crops, and uh, it turns out that the field that she's in is owned by a man named Boaz, who happens to be a godly and kind man. And he takes good care of Ruth. He, uh, he sends her home with a month's worth of food for one person. Two people, she and her mother-in-law could survive for, for two weeks on that. He, she, he sends her home with a month's worth of food after her first day of work because he heard about her care and concern, her kindness for Naomi, her mother-in-law. And Naomi recognizes that Boaz, the, the, the owner of the field, the man, uh, she recognizes that Boaz is a, a certain kind of relative. He's a redeemer, a goel, a redeemer, a guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. That's kind of the term that we're going to uh, latch on to, kinsman redeemer. We're going to keep the word kinsman in front of the word redeemer. Uh, he's, that means he's a member of the family clan, and he, can, he's, he has a special uh, right and privilege uh, to marry Ruth, the widow of his family member. He can marry Ruth, and he can have a child with her that would count as the child of his deceased relative. Right? She was married to Malon. Malon died out in Moab. So Boaz can come, and, and that, if that's true, then that means... Malon's family line has ended. And that means Elimelech's family line has ended because Malon and Kilion both died childless, right? Both the sons died childless, so that family would come to an end. That family line is doomed. But a kinsman redeemer is one of your kin, one of your relatives, and that person would, uh, would, would come in, uh, if you're a clan member, uh, would come in and can marry the widow and have the firstborn child belong to the deceased, so he has this ability to do what no one else can do. So that's now in, uh, in Naomi's mind. Naomi sees that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. He is eligible, unlike people outside the clan. He is eligible to save the family line. And she wants Ruth to mar- uh, remarry you know, to, to, if, if Ruth marries Boaz, that's good because she remarries. That means she's taken care of. She's not alone. She's not uh, without protection. She's not without safety and security. So uh, as a foreigner in Israel, you know, she's very vulnerable. And so Naomi, her mother-in-law, wants her to remarry. He, she wants her to be taken care of. And, of course, she wants Ruth to remarry uh, with the kinsman redeemer so that it'll save the line of Elimelech, which is Naomi's uh, deceased husband. We don't know how much time passes between chapters 2 and 3. Um, Boaz said that Ruth can keep gleaning through the barley and wheat seasons. That's how chapter 2 ended. He's like, you could stay here and glean for the entire season. And that's uh, two to three months. 
And it says that that's how long she stayed. And so at least that much time has passed between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Two to three months have passed. Uh, she's gleaned for that long. And now we're in chapter 3, and we don't know how much longer she's been sticking around and stuff. We don't know. But here we are. All of the events of this chapter that we're going to read today happen within 24 hours. Okay, what we're going to look at today from, from verse 1 to the end of the chapter is all going to happen in a single day or within the same time frame of, of 24 hours, right? Uh, we'll take it in three steps if you're taking notes. Uh, the first one is the plan for a redeemer. That's verses 1 through 5. The plan for a redeemer. The second is the promise of a redeemer. The promise of a redeemer. That will be uh, verses 6 through 13. And then the final one will be the pause on a redeemer. And pause as in like stop, not pause like animal feet, but, but pause like delay, postpone, pause, right? The pause on a redeemer, verses 14 to 18. Okay, let's start with the plan for a redeemer in verses 1 through 5. Uh, we'll start by reading in verse 1. This is what it says. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative whose young women you, uh, who, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on a cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth replied, all that you say, I will do. Na Naomi gives some weird advice here, right? This is weird advice. I don't, uh, I don't think any of the women here should read this and try to apply it, you know, directly as it is. Um, it's motivated in, in two, two major ways. First, Naomi hopes that Boaz will redeem the family, right? She will marry, uh, or he will marry Ruth to bear children, not just for them, but the firstborn would belong to her deceased husband, Malon, right? Uh, that's why she says, should I not seek rest for you? Rest meaning security and safety, right? By having a husband and a home. In that culture, it was normal practice for parents to find a spouse for their children. You didn't pick who you were married. Your parents picked your spouse. So here's Naomi trying to fulfill a role as a parent, even though she's a mother-in-law for, for Ruth. And is she even really a mother-in-law if, if, uh, if you know, Ruth's husband has died? Then the relationship with, with uh, Naomi is, you know, till death do you part, right? I don't know. But the second motive that she has is she's trying to find a husband for Ruth, uh, as if Ruth is her own daughter, that it'll be well with her. Right? That it may be well with you. That's what she says. It's for Ruth's benefit. Uh, after all, if Ruth remained unmarried, uh, she'd be unprotected. Life would be hard as a jobless foreigner. So there's the, whole, like, there's the whole redeemer thing, and then there's just the security thing. And so Naomi is thinking about Boaz as a kinsman redeemer, someone who could save Malon and Elimelech's family line. She considered Boaz's kindness to Ruth as a hopeful sign that he'd be willing to do this. Right? He's been so nice to you, it seems like we've got a chance. He seems to like Ruth. But let's talk about this plan, because I, I said it's weird advice. Uh, she says to Ruth, the, the plan basically is this. When Boaz falls asleep, sneak into that place 
uncover his feet, and then sleep there. And that's bizarre. Clearly, something is being lost in the cultural gap between them and us. Thousands of years have passed. Uh, we're half a world away. So this is such a weird idea. And I'll, I'll tell you this. This was also a weird idea in that culture. Okay, this is, this is odd to do. Not only that, but it, uh, it's dangerous, right? Sending a young woman off in the middle of the night is not a wise habit, right? Wait till he's asleep and stuff and then go and sneak in there. Like she has to then go outside of the city and go find his field. And, you know, and uh, if you notice in, uh, in chapter 2, verses 22, 23, uh, Naomi was very concerned about Ruth's safety. You know, she's like, stay close to his young women so you don't get assaulted, Right? So she's already very concerned about that, and, uh, and that's what Ruth does. She st sticks close to uh, Boaz's young, young maidservants, and, uh, and that's how she stays safe. But here the plan is very different. Naomi's like, you go in the middle of the night by yourself. No gun. You, know, you, you just go, and uh, you'll be all right. It's just a weird bit of advice because it puts her in danger, and yet Naomi seems to have a, like a, a certain conviction that this is okay, and that Ruth isn't going to get harmed, something like that has, has turned in her mind, and she doesn't think that God is against them. If anything, she's thinking, God's going to take care of you. You'll be all right. This is, this is going to be okay. I would never tell a young woman to sneak into a man's sleeping area at night, uncover his feet, and sleep there. That seems, uh, it seems intrusive, because it is. It doesn't happen, you know, it doesn't happen every day. It didn't happen in this culture all the time. Um, how many young women have tried this on Boaz? None. Because you're not supposed to do that. Uh, you know, because notice, it, well, it, later on in the chapter, he will wake up when Ruth tries to pull off this plan. He doesn't wake up and go, oh, again? Right? Oh, another woman's doing this? He doesn't do that. He's very much taken by surprise. He's, he's off, uh, off his, you know, off guard. Uh, he's, he has no idea what this is about. So this is, this is something that was very, very different than, uh, than what he would have expected, right? What would be the purpose, too? Why would you send Ruth to go uh, while Boaz is sleeping, uncover his feet, and then sleep there? What's supposed to happen? In the, in the morning, they wake up, they see each other, high five, and be like, that was awesome. Like, what, what's supposed to happen with that? We don't really know uh, why Naomi put the plan together like this, but that's the plan. Threshing floors, by the way, because Boaz is going to be at the threshing floor. Threshing floors were just smooth, level rock, okay? It's just this flat rock bed. And uh, what you would do is you'd take the grain and you'd, like, thrash it or you'd beat it with, like, rods and stuff, and it would start to separate uh, the, the actual grain, like the, the seed part or the, the hard, dense part, uh, edible part, and uh, from the stalk. But then there would also be all the leafy, flaky parts that you can't eat that's just, you know, it's, it's, it's just trash. So they, uh, what you'd do is you'd, you'd beat it and then you'd throw it up into the air. The wind would carry away the trashy parts. That's called chaff. The wind would carry that away. And then the, the dense parts, which is edible, would fall to the ground. So that's how you separate the grain from the chaff. 
Uh, and so he would be doing that because it was, wheat, it was a barley and wheat season. They had a lot of grain and stuff, and so there was a lot to do. And what's interesting to me is that this man is actually at the threshing floor himself instead of just having his servants do it. He seems to be acquainted with, with life uh, as a whole. You know, he's not just sitting as, as some uh, rich landowner making everyone do everything and, and he just uh, drinks in, uh, in his room. It's not like that. He seems to hang out with his servants. He has a good relationship with them, and he, and he also works with them, despite his, uh, his elevated status and his, his riches. So here's, uh, here's Boaz at the threshing floor, which is unusual for, you know, for someone of his stature. And Naomi seems to know that he will be there. So it seems... It, 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 it appears to be that this is his pattern. It's his habit. That it's not just this one-time event, but he's, he goes to the threshing floor and he works with his servants. And it says something very positive about him. So what Naomi says is, to Ruth is, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Make yourself pretty. Right? Put on your cloak and everything. Make yourself pretty and be ready to like, kind of be able to conceal yourself and, and, and go so no one knows who you are. You, know, you can stealth in there. Right, uh, and uh, that's because he, he, she tells her this because people didn't bathe every day in that culture, uh, and Ruth was, you know, slaving away every day in the heat to to glean. So she'd be sweaty and dirty, and that would just kind of be normal. But Naomi was saying, uh, you know, beautify yourself uh, so that you know when when you go and do this plan thing, and when Boaz wakes up and sees you, he doesn't see like some some mangy, crazy-looking person with wild hair, you know, all these flyaways that are just everywhere. Um, you know, he'll see someone who, who, who's used a brush, a little bit of hairspray or something, right? Well, uh, Naomi tells Ruth to be stealthy. Don't let him know you're there until after he eats and drinks, right? Let him, let him be relaxed. Uh, first of all, what's, what's, uh, what's Naomi got in mind? We don't really know. Why would Boaz sleep there? And why does Naomi know that he's going to sleep there? We don't know. There are a lot of questions we don't know, right? Because uh, Boaz would be sleeping outdoors. He's very exposed. He's very vulnerable. But he, that doesn't seem to bother him. And, and the fact that Naomi predicts this and knows that this is going to happen, it's, it's strange. We don't know why that, that is the case. Um, yeah, we don't have any answers to this question, but we can infer something, right? If Boaz is down to hang out with the servants and work the threshing floor and stuff like that, he, uh, he's eating and drinking and relaxing there, he probably also has other people eating, drinking, relaxing, and all that stuff. He, uh, his, uh, his humble relationship with his workers means that he's not so committed to a, a life of luxury, right? He's down to, to knock out outdoors. It's unusual, but apparently Naomi expects him to do this. It doesn't seem weird. It doesn't seem wrong to her. So the plan is to go to Boaz when he's asleep, uncover his feet, lie down, sleep there. And the next uh, is to wait for what Boaz will do. Like, wait there, he'll tell you what to do. Like, Naomi thinks if Boaz wakes up and sees you there, he'll know exactly what this is about. And he'll take it from there. So you just... You just listen to what he says. Well, all of this apparently was normal and acceptable. Nothing was, nothing was weird to Naomi. But at least what it means is nothing was immoral. Nothing here was risque or scandalous. Uh, no law was broken. 
No, uh, no indecent act is to be committed. It's just very, very different from, from us, our culture. Well, Ruth agreed to the whole thing. So what happens? Let's get to verses 6 through 13, the section we're titling The Promise of a Redeemer. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor, Ruth. Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Stop there for a sec, right? Look, everything goes according to plan. Boaz works there, he, he uh, eats and drinks, he's merry, he decides to sleep at the end of a pile of grain, which seems odd, but sounds kind of comfortable, I don't know. Uh, he was in a good mood, and then once he's asleep, Ruth uncovers his feet and lies down, and that means that, that he had a blanket, which means he was prepared to sleep there, right? Naomi knew that he would, he didn't just pass out from being drunk or something like that, that wasn't it, he was... He, he had brought supplies, you know. Is there some cultural meaning to uncovering someone's feet and lying there? The answer to that is no. There isn't. That isn't a normal thing. It's a, it's a weird, I don't know, symbolic gesture that Naomi thinks is cool. But that's not a thing. Right? You don't go and uncover someone's feet. That's just strange. But it does seem, in terms of practicality, like a good way to wake someone up in the middle of the night. Why? Because if your feet are uncovered, you wake up because it's cold. Unless you're one of the weird people that sleep with your feet sticking out of the blanket. But otherwise, you wake up because it's cold. When you're sleeping outdoors, it's going to be cold. In, in the safety of your bedroom, Maybe that's comfortable, but when you're sleeping outdoors in a desert climate like Israel, where the nights get very cold, uh, it, would, it would wake you up. Now, put yourself in this scene, okay? Because you know how like when we watch movies, anytime there's a nighttime scene in the movies, you can still see everything. It's just blue, right? You can see everything in the dark, and the, the actors, they act like they can't see anything, but you can see everything, because that's, they got all this professional lighting and everything and all that stuff. That's not the case here, right? It's dark, and he can't see anything. There's no way that, uh, that he'd be able to know what's going on, right? If you remove all the lighting, it's not going to be like a movie. There is no light. It's in the middle of the night. Your feet are cold, so you wake up. You realize you're not alone, Right? You wake up, you're like, why am I so cold? And you look down and there's like this mass down by your feet. Now you're, you're sleeping at the end of a heap of grain, right? So it's not more grain over there. And that thing is kind of breathing. So that's kind of scary. Like, what is that? Is that like a lion? You don't know. You can't see whose face it is. You, all you can tell after a while, maybe, you know, your eyes start to adjust and you're like, wait, am I dreaming? What is this? And then you could tell it looks like it's a woman. And you're wondering, what the heck was in my food and drink today? Right? Like, how did I end up here? How did she end up here? I don't remember any of this. So, verse 9, he said, who are you? Right? It's dark. He can't recognize her. Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. 
Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. You are a kinsman redeemer. You are a goel. Well, Ruth identifies herself by name, but she also says, I am your servant, which is a, a, a great little throwback to chapter 2. Let me show you chapter 2, verse 13. Ruth said to him, I, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. You know, she says, you're speaking kindly to me like, like I belong in your household, but I don't. But now she's like, spread your wings over your, uh, over your servant. Like she knows she belongs. They're close enough where she can say that because he's taken care of her for two to three months at least, right? He's, he's lavished her with, with plenty of provision. So she's, uh, she and he have built a relationship where she doesn't feel like a stranger to him. She said, you spoke kindly to me, you know, uh, to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants, but, you know, technically she's right. She didn't work for him, but now she knows that she is his servant. This is an indication of, of, of humility and also loyalty. She's like, even though I don't technically work for you, I know I'm your servant. You know I'm your servant. You know I'm here to, uh, to help you succeed. And then she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a goel. You are a guardian redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. Now, we already talked about what that is. Right? It's that relative in the family who, uh, who can... Uh, who can redeem the, the family line, can also buy back uh, slaves, family members who were slaves. The, the goel can go and buy them back, or the goel can go and buy back land that belongs to the family. Uh, he could buy that back. And if he doesn't buy that back, then uh, every seven years, there's a year of jubilee where that land automatically gets reset and given back. But the, the goel can go and buy that back, you know, if it was sold because they were in debt or something like that. So the, the Goel had, had uh, all these different obligations and privileges. He had a very special place. Um, it was heroic in that day, right? It wasn't, it wasn't like this, oh, I'm a guardian redeemer. I'm a kinsman redeemer, you know, like, woe is me. It's not that. It's that you had a, a place of honor. You were a hero for the family. And Boaz is a, a kinsman redeemer. He can marry Ruth. He can have a child, continue the line of, of Malon, which would continue the line of Elimelech. But what's the significance of this spreading your wings over someone? Why does she say that? Spread your wings over me. It's a, it's a weird thing. But the word wings, wing, is also what they would call the corner of a garment. So you know how she uncovered his feet? Remember that? Okay. She uncovered his feet. She took off the wing of the blanket. Everyone catching on to what I'm getting at, right? The, the, the corner of the blanket is called the wing. So that's how it works in Hebrew. So when, when she says, spread your wing over me, she could be like, spread your wings, flap, 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 you know, your wings. And she's just being like very poetic. Or she could be like, your blanket. Spread the corner of your blanket over me. You know, show me your protection. Show me kindness. Right? There's a, there's a, a plea there that's very vulnerable and, and, uh, and very close and intimate. She says, uh, put your blanket over me. Spread the corner of your garment over me. And if, you'll notice if you're using an ESV Bible, uh, your footnote should, uh, when you look at wing, you'll, you'll see that your footnote in your Bible says corner of your garment. Um, in either case, the, the word that was used to spread your wing over someone is to put them under your protection. Whether she's being poetic 
or whether she's talking about the blanket. In either case, she's asking for protection, right? Hide me in the shelter of your wings. Hide me in the, it, it, under, under your protection. That's what that means. Uh, this, this was absolutely the function of a goel, of a kinsman redeemer. But the context points very strongly that Ruth was not asking for physical protection for the night. It doesn't seem like she's like, I'm cold, let me have some blanket. It, it, it doesn't seem like it ends there, especially if you continue on in the conversation. Boaz immediately catches on to what she's saying. She is asking him, marry me. Put your protection over me, right? Let me belong with you in your bed next to you where your protection covers me like it it protects no one else. Where I am safe with you, safer than anyone else is with you. Hide me in the shelter of your wings. Place a garment over a maiden. In Arab cultures, uh, placing a garment over a maiden was a symbol of marriage common in those cultures. Ruth has just proposed to Boaz, marry me. You are an eligible and obligated man to save my family, to save me. Redeem me. Redeem Malon. Redeem Elimelech. Redeem the family. Be the hero. It was not an unkind request. It was an incredibly honorable one. One that would bring him in, in very uh, positive regard to, the, to uh, the society. But what's also at work is that Ruth is asking Boaz to do exactly what Boaz had prayed that God would do. Boaz prayed something. He pronounced a prayer. I'll show it to you in chapter 2, verse 12. It says, the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters, the Lord, Yahweh, repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Under whose corner of the garment under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Since you've come to God to find safety under his wings, may he give you a full reward. You came to God for protection. May God reward you for that. May God take care of you, receive you, and protect you because you came to him for protection. May God do that for you. And now she comes to Boaz and says, you know how you asked God to cover me with his wings? Cover me with your wings. Be the answer to the prayer that you made. Be the vessel by which God answers your prayer. Do what you prayed God would do. Because as we mentioned last week, prayer must be done with a heart that says, God, do your will. Do your will through me. Come back to chapter 3, look at verse 10. Boaz catches on to this. He sees her faithfulness. He sees her kindness. He sees what she's asking him, and he says, May you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, 
in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a Goel, I am a kinsman redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as Yahweh lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Boaz here shows his godly character once again, right? He responds with, may you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. May you be blessed by Yahweh. The first thing he utters is a blessing and a prayer connected to a term of affection and love, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first. That's what he says. This, this moment right here, I, this is a, an incredible act of kindness, is what he's saying. An incredible act, act of steadfast love, of loving kindness, of hesed. This act of hesed is even greater than the first. Well, the first kindness that Boaz was impressed by was him hearing how Ruth would selflessly commit herself to caring for Naomi. She would abandon Moab, abandon her Moabite identity, her home, her religion, all of that stuff. Cling to Naomi, cling to the God of Israel. That was the first kindness he heard about. And he says, that, that's what I was originally praying for. You know, God reward you for taking shelter in him. And now this last kindness that you're showing me, this most recent one, is even greater than that one. Like, how can you show me this kind of love? Right? This second kindness is greater now, uh, now because Ruth is saying, I will now selflessly commit myself to caring for you. Protect me. I will be your wife and I will take care of you. And Boaz is struck by this. Why is he so surprised? Why does he think this is an incredible act of kindness? I mean, they seem to have a chemistry. But the reason why is because she didn't go after any of the young men. Right? And notice he doesn't consider himself one of them. Right? She is, she's not super young, but she's not super old. She's, she's young or middle-aged. She can go after one of the, the more able-bodied men, one of the more one of the choice prospects. But this again highlights how Boaz is not young. He's old, right? He's, he's maybe in his 40s or 50s in that culture. That was a big deal. You're, you're old. And if you notice, he doesn't go, let me check with my parents because they're the ones in charge of, of arranging my marriage. Where are his parents? They're not in the picture. He makes the decision for himself because he's old. He's old enough where he didn't think he had a chance with this woman. Right? He just, he, he, it didn't come to his mind. He knew he was a redeemer, but he just didn't think that was going to happen. He's significantly older, but he's for some reason unmarried, despite being of high standing. You know, which again asked, makes us ask, was something wrong with him? You know, did the culture, did the society look at him and say, he, he's like a rich man, he's high standing, worthy man, but but there's this thing, and so I don't want my daughter to marry him. In any case, she's, Ruth is asking to commit her entire life to taking care of him, to being his wife, to be the mother of his children. Ruth, see, if Boaz thinks that he's just 
he's just going to be single for the rest of his life. That's the end of his family line. Ruth said, let me marry you. And we'll have children. You'll, you will be a redeemer for my family. And she'll be a redeemer for his. Right? Functionally, they're going to have children and Boaz's family line will be continued. It's a very forward proposal. She snuck in during the middle of the night. It looks like a scandal, right? Because if, uh, if people see some woman walk into his room in the middle of the night, it's, it's going to raise questions. She was all washed and clean. She was, you know, she's all pretty and stuff. She's wearing like anointed oil and things like that. She's, she's attractive. She's all dolled up. So, you know, it's, it's not going to seem like she was there to do some work. It seems like she was there for, you know, for like some kind of a fling, you know. It didn't make it look good. So it was very bold of her. She might have been scared that this could totally backfire. But, you know, Boaz immediately assures her. He says, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask because you are a worthy woman. And I really like the way that he says you are a worthy woman because if, uh, if you remember from chapter 2, verse 1, it said that Boaz, uh, the narrator introduced Boaz as a worthy man. You know, she's a worthy woman. He's a worthy man. Hmm? But there's a closer relative who, who, uh, who has the right to be the, the Goel, the, the kinsman redeemer. A closer relative. So Boaz, you know, he, he is eligible, but he's not the first in line. There's someone else. Boaz doesn't get first say on whether or not he'll redeem her. He has, to, he has to defer to this other relative. So Boaz wants to keep things fair. He won't do anything dishonest. He won't do anything manipulative. Even though a marriage is at stake, right? He could, he could, try, to, he could try to angle things his way, but, you know, so that he could get what he wants, but he doesn't. He says, you know, look, I need to check in with the other guy. If the other guy wants to redeem you, great, you're taken care of. If he doesn't, I will do it and you're taken care of, right? In either case, no matter which way it goes, Ruth is taken care of. That's right there. Ruth, like her, her story is, is done. You know, if the, if the plot for her was that she was a widow and she, she then needs to remarry and, and, uh, and, and continue the, the line, then it's done. It will either be that she marries this, this closer relative to, uh, to Elimelech, or she'll marry Boaz. In either case, either way, the family line is safe forever. I like how uh, Boaz says, if the other guy's not interested, if he doesn't want to be the redeemer, then as Yahweh lives, I will redeem you. As Yahweh lives, I will redeem you. That is the most solemn and binding oath that a Jewish person could take upon him or herself. That was, you know how like uh, when, when someone says, hey, I'll, I'll do this for you. And you go, you will? And they say, yes. You, go, you promise? They say, yes. Cross your heart? They say, yes. And then sometimes when you're in elementary school, you go, do you swear to God? And then they're like, whoa. That's like the highest level. That's what this is in Israel. 
And it, was, it wasn't just an expression and it wasn't like a childish thing. This was a solemn oath taken as Yahweh lives, as true as the reality of God is, which is the ultimate basis for understanding. As Yahweh lives, just as true as that is, I will redeem you. And then he just says, lie down, get some rest, go to sleep. She slept there safely for the night, no scandal, no dishonor. This is the promise of a redeemer. Now let's get to verses 14 to 18, the pause on a redeemer. Verse 14. So she, Ruth, so she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before anyone could recognize her, which means it's still dark. It's just a little bit before dawn. And he said to her, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So he's either saying that to her or to whatever servants are in the area. He just says, hey, keep this quiet. Don't, don't talk about this. Don't, don't spread rumors, right? Don't make it sound like there was some kind of a scandal that took place. Verse 15, and he said, uh, he said to Ruth, he goes, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city, right? They didn't do anything wrong, but it does look scandalous. So Boaz makes sure not to harm Ruth's reputation. He's, he's very careful about that. And that's, that's a good quality to look for in a man, right? One, one that cares about what other people think of you because you ought to be blameless before God. And then do your best to have the respect of outsiders, blameless before men. Before she leaves, though, he gives her six measures of barley. Six measures of barley. How much is that? Well, some, some Bibles will translate that six ephahs of barley. I don't think so because, you know, ephah is already a, a measurement mentioned in chapter 2. Uh, so I don't think that it would change the word ephah to measure here. Um, it's a different Hebrew word. Uh, so... Not only that, but six ephahs of barley would be 240 pounds, right? She's just carrying 240 pounds in her little garment, right? Just How buff is this woman, right? How much did she glean? So I don't think it's that. Uh, he was sending her home with, uh, with barley, you know, and it seems like he did that. So it, it didn't look like she just came for a sleepover. Maybe he was, he's sending her home so it looked like she did some work maybe, but that doesn't seem to be the case if you keep reading. But uh, it, was, it seems to be more of like a message, a gift in recognition of Naomi's part in all of this. Look at this, verse 16. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, she said, how, uh, Naomi said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then Ruth told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Well, it seems like the, the six measures of, of barley, by the way, if you take it from a, a, a different, um, an Aramaic phrase in the Old Testament of the Targum, an Aramaic paraphrase of the Old Testament, uh, the Targum, it says six seahs. That's probably 88 pounds. It's still a huge amount for her to carry back. It's kind of mean to make her walk back with 88 pounds 
uphill into a city. But he says, you can't go back empty-handed. So he's probably pouring out barley. And Ruth is like, thank you. You're so nice. Thank you. And then he keeps pouring more. She's like, what are you doing? And he keeps pouring more. She's like, I can't. And he just keeps pouring more. And she's like, I don't want to. And he goes, you can't go back empty-handed. She's like, this is not empty. This is 88 pounds. And he's like, God bless you. Yahweh be with you. And then she just has to go. She goes. I love that Naomi asks, how did you fare, my daughter? But I don't love it in English. Because in English, it just says, says like, oh, how did it go? How did you fare? You know, like, are you happy? Did things go your way? Did you have a good day? That's what it sounds like. That's not what she asks. In the Hebrew, she goes, who are you, my daughter? That's a weird question, right? Who are you, my daughter? And it's not to say that Naomi doesn't recognize her in the dark. She knows it's her daughter, you know, because she, she says, my daughter, right? She knows exactly who she is. Who are you, my daughter? is the literal Hebrew translation. And it does mean, how did you fare? Because it has this kind of implication. Ruth, you've come back. Who are you now? Are you still Malon's widow? Or are you Boaz's fiance? Who are you, my daughter? That's this great, like, mystical question. Who are you now? Are you the same person you were when we got here? Or are you a new person with a brand new destiny, a brand new identity? Ruth shows the barley, explains, you know, and we find out that uh, he said, that Boaz said, you you can't go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. It's an intentional wording from the Lord. It's an intentional wording, right? When you get to Naomi, make sure you're not empty Make sure you're not empty. And, not, uh, and this, is, this is a message. Boaz is not sending a secret message. God is sending a secret message. You could, you could totally see this uh, because the intentional wording here from, uh, is from the Lord because uh, Naomi said about herself, remember when she, she changed her name? She's like, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter or unpleasant, right? Remember that? Um, Ruth chapter one, verse 20, right? Uh, she said to them, Naomi said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Do you remember she said that, right? It's the same Hebrew word. Naomi believed she was empty. She had nothing. God left her with nothing. God was against her, took everything away. And yet here's Boaz saying, wait, before you go back, take this. I will not let you go to your mother-in-law empty. She's not empty. The word is peculiar enough to mean something to Naomi. It's specific enough. She's like, I said that just a few months ago. I said I was empty. God made me empty. And clearly God's doing something here. I was, I was convinced God was doing something so much that I would send my daughter in the middle of the night by herself to go visit a man while he's sleeping. That puts her in immense amount of danger. And I know God is going to do something and so I'll risk it. And what happens? The man says she is not empty. She is not empty. You're not empty, Naomi. Ruth has come. 
and the Redeemer will never leave you empty. From the vantage point of the reader, we know this has significance because it's the last time Ruth speaks in this book. Ruth explained this story. Her last words, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She doesn't speak for the rest of the book. She kind of fades out, and the story will then kind of move in emphasis. Right? The first chapter, it was kind of on Naomi. The second and third chapter was on Ruth. And then it's going to move in, in the last chapter to Boaz. These final words from Ruth point our attention to Boaz, to who he is, to what he's going to do. And that's what we are to anticipate. Verse 18, Naomi replied, Wait, my daughter. Pause. Wait. Until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. See then how these words immediately convinced Naomi that Boaz will handle this. She heard, Boaz insisted that I not come to you empty. You must not be received with empty hands. Something clicks in Naomi. And she says, Ruth, everything will be fine. It means no matter what, Ruth will be married, whether to Boaz or to a nearer relative. It means Malon, her deceased husband, will be redeemed, which means Elimelech, Malon's dad, Naomi's deceased husband. Elimelech's line will be redeemed. Naomi isn't scared anymore. Naomi doesn't think God is going to pull some kind of trick on her. She doesn't think she's bitter or unpleasant to the Lord, to the Almighty. Naomi is confident. She says, just wait, my daughter, wait. Everything will be fine. And so Ruth has to wait for chapter 4. The themes here in chapter 3 are really a further pronouncement of the same themes that we've been seeing in chapters 1 and 2. Kindness and redemption. Right? Kindness uh, is, is shown when Ruth shows kindness to her mother-in-law by abandoning her whole past and her identity to cling to Naomi and cling to God. Boaz shows kindness in his welcome to Ruth, his provision for Ruth, his promising to do all he can for Ruth to save her family line. You can see all this kindness, right? These are manifestations of God's kindness to his people by providing, protecting, and promising and performing what's promised. The theme of redemption shows up again and again. This is bound to the idea of kindness, but the word redeem appears in some form, whether it's redeem, redeemer, lots of different ways, but uh, redeem appears in some form 23 times in this book. It is to rescue or to save, not by defeating a villain or not by subduing physical danger, but it's to rescue or save by paying a cost, to paying a ransom or a price. Boaz is promising to either let a closer relative redeem Ruth or 
he will do it himself. It means that he will come and pay the cost to purchase back the family land and to pay a bride price to marry Ruth and then to pay to raise children, the first one being a child that won't even belong to him but will belong to Malon, Ruth's deceased husband. What then is the outcome of all this? What will happen to Ruth? What will happen to Boaz? What will happen? What will God do? His activity is still veiled and mysterious, and it's not till the end of the book that you see where it's all going. So what is going to happen with it all? Well, you too have to wait for chapter 4. You have to pause and simply process that God is providing and protecting and promising and clearly you can pick up the momentum that he is going to perform that which was promised. If I can uh, get into a little bit more of an elaborate talk about kindness and redemption. Kindness, loving kindness, uh, the word can also be translated just love, steadfast love. It always costs. It always costs. Notice that when Ruth shows hesed, shows loving kindness, steadfast love to Naomi, it costs her everything that she was. When she shows kindness to Boaz, says, I will become your wife, marry me. Give, bring your protection over me and let me come to you. Again, she gives up everything that she was. When Boaz shows kindness to her. Look at the great cost it is. Right? On the first day of work, it's a month's worth of food. On the day that, that she comes just to, uh, to propose, he doesn't even have a guarantee that he's going to marry her. It's, it's not a bride price that he gives her, but he just throws 88 pounds of grain at her simply to say, your mother deserves this for her kindness. Look at how much love costs, how much steadfast love, loving kindness, how much has said costs. Because everything about this, everything, as every book of the Bible does, every, every book points to Jesus, the reality of Jesus. And the themes in this book point to the reality of Jesus. And look at the, the, the cost of his love, right? That how, how much does it cost him? It costs him his whole self. He gives himself up. He lowers himself. The dignity that is lost by sitting in the throne on heaven, then coming down in human flesh and being born on earth and having to live for 30-some years, walking around among people who are sinful and rebellious, hypocritical, mockers of God, having to deal with the, the issues of just living in the body and pain and discomfort, when he was on a throne. And all for the aim to get him to a cross, to be tormented and mocked and ridiculed and then murdered. Slowly, shamefully. Look what it cost. Loving kindness always costs. And if ever you ask, like, do I love someone with a godly love? Number one, it will always cost. 
And number two, it will always redeem. It will rescue someone. It will give them strength that they otherwise would not have. Sure, you can think I'm going out with my friends and I'm going to buy them lunch. That, that shows my, my godly love for them. And that, in a sense, that's true because it shows your generosity fine. But you're friends. You're already friends. It costs you a few dollars. But it's different when you, when you take your enemy out to sit down and talk and you buy them a meal. Your pride is given up and, and your hope then is to mend that relationship, to rescue something, to redeem. If ever you want to see the steadfast love of God exercised in your life, like Ruth and Boaz, it can't be anything scandalous. It can't be anything that breaches your moral principle. But it will always cost and it will always redeem. It will always be a picture of Jesus because God's perfect act of kindness was Christ. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks for the truth that we see in just this one day in Ruth's life where Naomi gives her advice and she goes and proposes to Boaz and he promises her redemption and then sends her home making sure her hands are not empty. We are so grateful for this story which demonstrates to us redeeming steadfast love, redeeming loving kindness. We see the love of a redeemer. We see it previewed here and then shown in its full glory with Jesus on the cross and then echoed in the life of every worshiper of Christ. And we pray, God, that it's something that you would highlight in us, strengthen and intensify and bring out. Pronounce your redeeming love to the world. That is our prayer, that you would do this and that you would do this through us. May our love not just be words. May it be a life lived, willing to pay a cost in order to redeem. And as we wait for what's to come next to see how you have orchestrated the events to carry out your redemptive plan, we pray, Lord, that you would teach us that too that in whatever season of life we're in, whether it be in plenty or in want, in abundance or in need, that we would not turn and say, God must be against me. God has taken everything away. But that we would understand that all things are in your hands. And whether in this life or the next, you are working it all 
to our eternal good. And so we thank you for Jesus, and we trust in you. All this we pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.